Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one more time, number three talk session from Monty Alexander sharing wonderful memories. I call it reminiscing in rhythm. All the way from Kingston, Jamaica. I was born in Jamaica in the year 1944. I'm a young boy. Yes, I am. Got a few grays. This is like several weeks of being staying home. Here I get long. It, it soon looks like, like weeds and grass growing out forever. This song we were just playing was a version of Ireland in the Sun that I myself had recorded. In fact, I like it so much. I'm going to ask my worthy cinematographer, assistant producer, lighting expert, the wonderful Miss Katarina. We know her as Miss Cat. She's doing a remarkable job. This is the 24th anniversary of our wonderful being together. 24 today, April the... No, no, it was the day before. It was today, April the 18th. Would you please play that song again from the beginning? It makes me feel like I'm back home again. I came to America. One of the first things that happened, my mother said to me, Monty, you're now in America. You shouldn't talk like a Jamaican anymore because this if they hear the Jamaican accent in the sun, they're gonna not give you the certain amount of respect so I remember going to the movies and I would hear the, the, the people on the screen talking more like this so they had a way of delivering each word each syllable that they came out with a more let's call it sophisticated or uh, a manner of uh, well-educated we went to um, great lengths to pronounce every, every syllable. So for a while I started to talk like this, which was ridiculous because that's not really how I talk. But at least it made people stop asking me, hey, where you from, man? Where you from? Because I got tired of where you from stuff. And I said, man, it's not where I'm from, it's where I'm going. And guess what? I went places. Miss Cat, could you turn it down just a little? I made a decision when I talked again I was going to more be real, realistic, open the vaults of my memory, and in order to do so, I was going to put all these artifacts. Before I go on about my journey, I'm take a moment out to say this indeed is an unprecedented time in world history, one that sh makes us shudder, and the only thing that some of us try to say is use the word hope. We're hoping, we're praying that this will subside and people will not succumb to this terrible scourge upon us. So I want to stop and say thank you very much to our wonderful governor, Andrew Cuomo. This is a guy that is one heck of a guy. That's all I have to say. And um, I once met his father. What a great honor it was to meet Mario Cuomo and to see that family in action, giving out so much positivity and loving vibrations to the citizens of the state, yes. So that's Jamaican Monty making a statement. And um, so, as I was saying, and last week when I spoke, I was a little jumbled, something was going on with me and I didn't really come out. I won't even tell you much, much more about the origins of this music and the culture that came out of Jamaica that, that introduced us to some new vibrations in the world that spoke to people in the third world countries all over the world. If people ask me where I was from in a foreign country, and I said Jamaica, the first word came out of the mouth was Bob Marley. 
Everybody said, Bob Marley, man, who come from Jamaica. That's the guy. Yes. And before Bob came, I was playing in the recording studios from I was about 14 years old, playing my boogie rhythm. I knew what to do. I owned it. I felt it. I was there. So when I joined up with these guys who were 10 years, 20 years older than Monty Alexander, I was a part of the family. I was a pioneer with this music that was really simple. Two chords, three chords, four chords, and just coming, coming up with a rhythm that was, was real and true to the people of Jamaica. But I fell in love with something that was just music, period, didn't matter what kind of music it was, I heard the radio. We had one radio station in Jamaica, RJR, Radio Jamaica and Rediffusion. And they would play a pop song, then they'd play a classical piece, then we would play a country tune, then we would play some Louis Armstrong. There he is. And by the way, I shook that man's hand when I was 10 years old. I wanted to play the trumpet. I wasn't very good at that. They had, the school guys had me as a mascot at the football game playing. But I met him and he was my hero of heroes because when he played, he did what I love to try to do and apparently do most of the time. It's called to bring upliftment and joy. And that's what this so-called jazz meant to me. It was a wonderful way for humans to communicate with each other, but bring a message of uplift, not uh, an alcohol-infused version of let's get drunk. And No, no, it was something about the joy of life. And I got that message from I was 10 years old. Yes, I did. And before that, when I would play the piano. So as I go from point to point, sharing various thoughts, I want to tell you that over these next talks and some of it today, I'm going to be able to share some personal anecdotes and memories of being in the company of some people that the world likes to think about so-and-so and this other person and that other person. I got a list here, hold it up, and I wrote down all these people. I'm going to be able to... And that list is, when I look at it and you just call the name, tell me about so-and-so. I can tell you about when I was with whoever. Jack Lemon, who came into the Carlisle Hotel when I was playing there in 1979, and he became really friendly with me, the great movie actor. He invited me to the Broadway play he was doing, and guess what? This guy could play the piano. He was a wonderful pianist, and he, of course, he stepped back from his piano playing to be the marvelous thespian that he was. So I'm thinking of Mr. Jack Lemon right now, and um, too bad he had given me his phone number, and too bad I never really followed up to say, Hey Jack, it's Monty, the piano player. I never went to that. So it, it was a, a, a relationship that didn't go much further. So I, I can go on and on and on because I have a list here that maybe my producer, dear Miss Cat, can call the name out and I will tell you about that person. But in the meantime, I'm talking about Miami, Florida, 1962. I come here, well actually it was the end of 61. And I'm, and I'm trying to navigate who I am because first of all if you look at me I am the subject of confusion for a lot of people when they would say to me hey man what are you what do you mean what am I I'm Monty Monty I'm Monty Alexander but they want to know what my background was what my father my grandfather this thing called ethnic I don't know it wasn't much later than that that I heard words that helped me to define who I was and I was a guy with a mixed origin. My mother and my father, of all these different beautiful people from all over the world, 
which I would like to put in a, on, in a ribbon and call myself and people like me Wondrous Variety. We are Wondrous Variety. Duke Ellington wrote, wrote a suite of music called Black, Black, Brown, and Beige. Some of us are beige. So here is Beige Monte Alexander in Miami Beach in 1961. We had an apartment two blocks away from where I would go to see the sport that my father showed me uh, when I was back in Jamaica, the art of boxing. And by the way, somebody wrote back to me in a Facebook to say, boxing's a terrible thing, terrible thing. Yes, it's a terrible thing. But I saw correlation between a fighter's rhythm and the way jazz musicians played, especially coming from the way I, I like to hear jazz music, which is a directly an African origin that came to, the, to America, blended with wonderful European sensibilities, and you stirred it up like the people who get stirred up, and you came up with this thing called jazz. So, as I meander through my various thoughts here, I'm going to tell you, my mother said, don't talk like a Jamaican. And I started to talk more like this, like the uh, movie stars I saw, like it was whether it was John Wayne or whether it was, uh, let's say, uh, any of those guys. And, and here is 1961, 62. This is what had just come out. This is called Dr. No. It was filmed in Jamaica. And when it was filmed in Jamaica, No, that was the first time they played that theme and of course 25 installments of Dr. No and I saw that movie it must have been 25 times it was two blocks away from our apartment why because I was homesick and I saw people in the movie that were extras that I knew back in Jamaica they, they knew Monty Alexander and had made a couple of little recordings and they they say hey they knew me and I saw them on the screen shooting at Sean Connery 007 and the other big thing was when I met, oh, I hope I don't destroy my, my uh, marvelous thing. This man, I think I said it from last week. This is the one and only then Cassius Clay. Cassius Clay who adopted a religion of Islam and this beautiful human being, this blessed man who was a jazz musician in the ring. When he moved, he moved with precision, but it was all free. He had no plan. He would take it as it came, and he would somehow keep winning and give us the excitement and the thrill. But out of the ring, he was this exceptional, beautiful guy who brought love and respect. And here we are, years and years later from when he quit boxing, he's one of the most admired, beloved human beings. But I got to meet this guy, just like I'm at Louis Armstrong. I shook his hand. He was standing next to a boxer, friend of his, that was a guy from Jamaica. His name was Alan Harmon. And I recognized Alan Harmon. I went up to Alan Harmon and said, but in my, Jama my Jamaican way, I said, hey, Alan Harmon, what, man? You look good, good to see you, man. You up here in Miami, Florida now, because Miami was a hotbed with boxing. And he introduced, he shook my hand. And the other gentleman standing next to me, I shook his hand. They were dressed impeccably in these pinstripe suit. Boy, and there was a guy, some sharp like that. The sharpest people in the whole auditorium where a lot of the boxing people were smoking those cigars. And, and I remember I went back into the auditorium and I'm sitting right behind 
two elderly gentlemen from New York, you know, and they were sitting back there and what, they looked around at these two great looking guys walking into the auditorium to observe the next match. And one of them was Alan Harmon. And this gentleman sitting in front of me, I heard him say, hey, Irvin. I said, you guys say, yeah? He said, see that guy over there? He said, yeah. He said, he got a big mouth and I hope somebody knocks, to, knocks him off his block or something like that, right? I said, what? And I looked, he pointed at Alan Harmon. And then I realized, no, he was pointing at the man next to him. Guess who it was? Cassius Clay. It's the first time I encountered that man. And, and not long after that, I would go mm, 20 blocks down on Miami Beach to the Fifth Street gym to watch him train. Because it was like watching Charlie Parker play a solo. This guy was awesome. Okay, so I've told you about my time. And that was the year 1962 in Miami, Florida, to see um, Ali, to see Dr. No. And all this is in, it going on with me. Now, mind you, I told you this before. I'm not the fortunate guy who went to some music schools, learned uh, in the Academy, Juilliard, Berkeley, and all that. What I got with music, to me, and I'm, please believe me, I speak the truth. I have no idea how I got that. It was a blessing, a light that came on to me. And from an early age, I said, what is this? How come I can play that song? and see people smiling and be happy. What's that? I don't understand it. And what I start to do, since I had no origin, uh, where did it come from? You know, I'd hear it, I could go play it, and yes, if I applied myself a little more than normal, I could play it hmm, even better than before. And um, all I could do was thank the great giver of great gifts. And that is, believe you me folks, from those days I started to Thank God for this mysterious gift that I, I don't know how it came to me. But I, one day somebody offered me a job and paid me, what, a few bucks? Took the money home to my mother and said, Mom, do you believe it? I, had, I played at a place and the guy gave me uh, this $20 or whatever it was. From that day, I've been a professional musician. I never went to school. This is not something to get all chest puffed out that I'm so special. But in a way I am because I didn't know music and all that rigid whatever that is supposed to be in fact if you put music paper in front of me i'm dead i can't again i'm choking you know with fear because i'm going to mess the, everything up so what i do when i play music i don't play music i play experiences i play thoughts i play insp inspiration and the word inspiration means spirit in within and i would pray and thank god for this gift that i had that brought me here and I'm still trying to figure out how come me, right? And really the thing I had to learn was how to stay out of my own way. Okay, it's very, um, I don't know how people look at the, this guy sitting here, blab blab, talking about his journey. But let me tell you, it's such a thrilling time, especially if it was early 60s, 60s, that it's hard not to talk about it. So I'm going to move on now from, from that moment and tell you in the early part of 1962, um, I got a job, I met a booking agent kind of person, Mr. Clark. He said, hey kid, where you learn to play like that? I said, same old thing. I, I'm not sure, I don't know. Well, we've got to get you some work around Miami, you know? I said, okay. The first thing you had to do was get a union card. The union card, and by the way, in order to get the, the green card to allow me to stay in America, you had to have, and I was going to play music, the excuse that I was a so-called so -called exceptional musician, I had to have a 
union card. But it turned out that the Miami people wouldn't give me the union card. I'm, I'm an alien kid and they're not happy that some little guys come in and maybe taking away a job from one of their team, right? So this Mr. Clark, he knew somebody down in Marathon, Florida. Marathon, that's down by Key Largo, going towards Key West. And that's how I got my union card. And that led to something else called my green card. And if I tell you how I got my green card, that's another awesome thing. After Mr. Clark had done all that, there was another man named Stark, S-T-I-R-K. His father was Mr. Stark, Herman Stark, and he was, from what I understood, one of the owners of the famous Cotton Club in Harlem. And Steve Stark, he said, listen, kid, I, like I'm 17, 18, I'm green, but I'm trying to stay out of trouble, right? Because trouble is waiting for a guy like me around the corner, right? And he said, we're going to New York, and there's a place there called Jilly, so we're going to try to get you to play there and so on. And um, uh, we're going to, maybe you're going to play a, a tune for the agent. I said, because I, the idea of auditioning is the worst thing in the world for me, right? But I go with this, this um, Steve, Steve Stark. We go to New York, and we go to meet the, the guy at this Jilly's. Now, Jilly's is where Frank Sinatra holds court whenever he's in in uh, New York and of course people in entertainment they want to be around that man because he's the king he's the, the master he's the chairman of the board wow he carried big stick he also walked with big stick he acted with big stick so I go play the piano and okay fine no no big thing because auditions I choke and I, I didn't feel like playing we said after that, say, listen, before we go back to, to Miami, let's go by um, somewhere. Come with me. And we walk down Broadway about five, six blocks. We go inside this building. He goes up to uh, a man named Mr. Mills' office. The office of Irving Mills. I don't know nothing. So we walk into, walk into the office and he says, hello, Uncle, Uncle Irving. And, and Uncle Irving says, hey, Steve. Um, you, this is my, my, my friend here, my young friend from Jamaica. He can really play the piano. You should hear him play. And said, by the way, Duke is here in the office. And he said, hey, Uncle Duke. Uncle Duke. Duke Ellington. There's Duke Ellington lying on the couch taking a nap or resting. Duke Ellington says, hey, kid, or something like that. Hey, this is over 60 years ago. And um, next thing you know, I'm playing the piano for Duke Ellington. What? I wasn't nervous or anything because at that time I never realized the grand splendor of this incredible man and musical artist. So all this is to tell you that Duke Ellington was one of four people who wrote letters when Steve said, listen, we've got to try to help Monty to stay in America. Okay? One of the ways you could stay in America, hopefully, is when people of renown could write a letter to the U.S. immigration to say, this young man is worthy, he's talented, and he's gonna make a difference in, the, in America's uh, culture. Okay, so Duke wrote a letter to say, Monty Alexander should be permitted to stay in America. There were three other people. My mother knocked on his dressing room door when he was performing in Miami at the Eden Rock or one of those hotels. The other man was Count Basie, so I got, she said, got to write a letter for my son. And Count Basie, out of some kind of compassion, wrote a letter. Said, Mr. Monty should be able to stay in America. The third person was a man I met that, who was actually a manager for me for a brief period. You all right, remember the name, Eddie Fisher. Eddie Fisher, who was a popular movie star 
but he had also had a radio show and he was really a descendant from like Eddie Cantor, Al Jolson, that he was a beloved young Jewish singing performer. And Eddie liked Monty Alexander and somehow it ended up where he became, on paper at least, my manager. Eddie wrote a letter to say, let Monty stay in America. And the fourth person, the man I met in 1962 when I was playing at a place called Le Bistro, was none other than Frank Sinatra. So there are four letters sitting in the US immigration that I've never seen. Didn't think about it at the time, and maybe one day I'll go ask them, say, okay, are the letters, where are the letters? But I have a letter to prove, yes, four letters, one from Duke, one from Sinatra, one from Eddie Fisher, one from Count Basie, and that's how I was able to stay in America. But if that ain't, if that ain't magic of humankind, I have no way to explain because like I said, everything, it's not because I went and pushed to try to get this on record. I just wanted to be around magnificent people. And um, I started to play around Miami, um, all these little clubs and bars where there were, some people would say, dens of iniquity. The drug world was on the rise. The people were sniffing the coke. The people were getting high and something told me from Jamaica days, stay away from that. Stay away from that, and yes, thank you, I stayed away from that. I uh, uh, avoided the pitfalls of that world where everybody wanted to feel that, I call it synthetic applause. Because when a performer stops playing and the applause stops, which is like a drug, they got to keep that feeling. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly what it is, and I'm no psychologist, but to me, that's synthetic. It ain't the real thing. Applause. Sniff it whatever, and then people feel this lie. It's a lie. Anyhow, long speech. But I started to gig around Miami, and I met all these fabulous people. So if I look up my list, I can tell you all these times I was around um, the, the, the various people in Florida. I met little Willie John, the guy who wrote, Never know how much I love you, that Peggy Lee recorded. Fever. Little Willie John, he wanted me to go play with him, but people said, Don't go play with little Willie John. Yeah, I want to go with Willie John, but he was blues cat, awesome. And he later on he wanted me to play a company him to Hawaii, go to Hawaii. But Bobby said, no, don't go with, with Willie because he hang out with some dangerous people. And I didn't go. Thank you, thank you very much. But like I said, the people that I've met along the way, um, and the musicians that I've had the awesome uh, privilege of sharing on the bandstand, I could go on and on and on, but. Paul Chambers played with me. Paul came to Florida with me. I played with one of the most beautiful human beings, Mr. Sam Jones, who was a Florida cat. I played for Johnny Hartman, that famous singer who played on that beautiful record with John Coltrane. And then I played with Dizzy Gillespie. I had a, an invitation to play with Ella Fitzgerald because she, was, she needed a piano player. Tommy Flanagan had uh, come down with, a, with an illness and they needed somebody that they thought could do the job. Well, folks, I don't read music. And when Mr. Norman Grants invited me to come play with Ella, she likes how you play, you go play with Ella. I was, of course, the first feeling was, what, I'm thrilled, I'm honored. But guess the second feeling was I got, I started shaking. Why? Because I don't read any music. So they're gonna throw this paper at me, and you gotta play that, and, and fear won the day. And I, I said, I called Mr. Norman Grants back, I said, Norman, um, thank you for the privilege, and they said, but I, 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 I can't do this. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to mess up the queen of them all. 
Ella, right? So ne never had the gig with Ella. Okay, I could back up and tell you more Miami stuff. I'm gonna take a sip of water and when I get on a roll, folks, I have a feeling that I'm talking way too much. But I have some pictures here. I'm gonna show you pictures. Oh, there's Duke. That's Duke. I was around him on several occasions. Here's a man I absolutely admired and he was very kind to me. Errol Garner, who was a guy who, when he played, it was an orchestra, it was swinging. He did it all by himself. He didn't go to the music school like some of us didn't. And he was just a natural guy. He came out of the good earth. Errol Garner. Wow. We hung out some, yes? When? How? Oh, that was in, in New York. And he would, I was playing a gig and he came and he sat in and did what he did. People loved it. And a couple of times I was hanging out with him at some place and I met him at another place and he was just one in a million. He was a very short guy, he sat at the piano, he needed to sit above the keys a little and he put a New York telephone book under his derriere and that gave him the height so he could sit over the keys and when he started, when he kicked off that tempo, every foot tapped. Yes, sir. This is a man that I had the total joy to make music with, made a lot of albums. The one and only Milt Jackson. They called him Bags. He would stay up late, 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 and the bags developed under his eyes, like Duke Ellington, you know? So these are the kinds of people I had the honor of being around. Now that's a whole different approach to the world of Jamaica. The place where I come from, down in, down in Jamaica, in Kingston, where you go down, that's how we talk. And later on, um, I have my notes here. Without the notes, I'm dead. Because, yes, yes, yes. Issues that have to do with um, our lives, right? That, that place where I was playing was the B. The person on the bill in the main lounge was none other than Lenny Bruce. Some of you may remember Lenny Bruce, who without doubt is a complete uh, benchmark in comedy. But he was kind of comedy, was a very rough edge comedy. And Lenny, who I got to know, in fact, I would be standing at the bus stop to go to the job at Labie, and he was the, the main performer. He saw me as he was driving by, and on a couple of nights he saw me, he said, get in, kid. And he would drive me to the job. And he'd love to be around the jazz man, because those comedians, I found out a lot of them thrived on relationships and friendships with the jazz cats, especially the hip cats, you know? And Lenny fell victim to uh, the substances. The police would be at the door waiting for him to say some kind of irreverent statement that they could take him to the can, as we call it. Because Lenny Bruce was a, a very, um, what's the word, what's the word? He was a magnetic, but he was a caustic guy. And a with the kind of, I mean, I, there's a popular television show right now that apparently was inspired by the world of Lenny Bruce, Miss, Mrs. Maisel, I think it's called. That whole mood that they've created is Lenny Bruce's world, which I think spawned the great George Carlin and people like that. So you see, folks, my world has not been jazz. It's just life. And of course, being astounded by being in the company of these people, a lot of them who just came up from the roots, they didn't go to an academy, and they became my heroes. Most of these men and women were, were born in a trunk, as we used to say, uh, 
Buddy Rich, I met him. We weren't friends or anything, but Buddy was one of these natural geniuses, you know? And um, that's what, for me, the world of jazz has been. These people who defied description, you know? So I'm going to stand here now, and maybe you can see what I'm going. Here's, here's me and Mr. The Dr. Honorable Harry Belafonte. Harry, who is a Jamaican man, and I think his, uh, one of his parents is Martinique or Guadeloupe, but he's born in Harlem, and he has maintained his heritage and love for Jamaica. And he, of course, is one of our great activists for civil rights, a man deserving all honor and respect from all of us for all that he, he did to bring Dr. Martin Luther King to the, to the powers at the time and begin a dialogue of how to make the world a better place, especially for people of color. Harry Belafonte. Big up, Harry. Wow. Here is... This man is Mr. Tony Bennett. Now, over here on the wall, if you can turn over there, is a beautiful painting of musicians who came to New York to play with me. They come from the world of mental, the old folk music, and, and the photo was taken and a beautiful painting was made, and it's none other than Tony Bennett, the great vocalist, one of our treasures in America, Tony Bennett, who I, I had the honor of being in his company on many occasions. He gave me his friendship, and uh, we wish him every day to be a good day, a joyful day, because both he and Harry Belafonte were down in Selma, marching with Dr. King. So he, Tony, is a lover of all people, as was Sinatra. They did a lot of, lot of wonderful things to bring people together. So, so I've been in that company. Now, for me, this man is Nat King Cole. Unforgettable, that's what you are. And guess what? I saw him at the Carib Theatre in Kingston just a little before and I saw Louis Armstrong. And he was to me the king, Nat King Cole. Because um, I heard the records. My mother and father had beautiful albums where they would dance in the living room. Nat Cole. And of course, he was the master jazz pianist that spawned a lot of imitators and influenced a lot of great musicians. And I'll just throw a few names at you. Bill Evans talked about his early inspiration was Nat King Cole. Oscar Peterson, who played in the manner of Nat. Nat was like amazing because he had all these people living in one guy. Master entertainer, singer of awesome proportions. In fact, his voice, when I first heard him, I thought it was one of my Western heroes because as a kid, I loved Gene Autry. Gene Autry, who, like Roy Rogers, where's my Roy picture? Hey, where's Roy? <laughs> I'm, I'm having a ball, folks. This is me and Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers, one of Jam Jamaica, America's great stars. This beloved man, they played a music that was so simple. He said, back in the saddle again, out where a friend is a friend, and, and so on. And Gene Autry and those men would do something that I loved when they did it. It's called Yodel. Let me see if I can remember holding. I know it sounds nuts, but I love to play my melodica and sing the cowboy songs. The Western heroes were a big part 
of American history back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, started with a man named Tom Mix. And I became a devotee of the Westerns. To this day, I like to watch the old movies. And it's like, forget the world and go off and ride off into the, to the hills and the valleys and the creeks and, and, and enjoy that open, the great outdoors. And it reminded me of the mental music in Jamaica that had the island beat, but the cowboys were the, on the, the underpinning cornerstone of country western music. No, no doubt about it. There was a man named Jimmy Rogers that inspired Gene Autry, who was the biggest star. And that's before my other big hero, Bing Crosby, came along. So Gene Autry had a record because he sang Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And he was every kid's favorite. And when I heard a record on the radio one time that I thought was Gene, and the song was Kimo Kaimo, it was a little kiddie song, and I thought it was Gene Autry. No, it wasn't Gene Autry. It was, where did I put it? Nat King Cole. So there, there was Nat. Now over here in the corner is a beloved photo of mine. There is Nat and Mr. Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, they were buddies. They're sitting in some joint there in 1948 or something like that. Look at Nat, Nat's face. He's playing piano and Frank is in, in heaven. He's got his Jack Daniels there. And those men are having a ball. That's what I love to see. And that's when I go on the bandstand. That's what goes on between me and my musician friends, right? So I adore that band, Nat, because he, he just defied normal. And years and years go by, and guess what? His daughter, Natalie, made an album in tribute to her dad. And they heard that Monty Alexander knew her father's music well. And indeed, that's what happened. They invited me. It was during the, the Persian Gulf War, I remember very, very strongly. And we went, I went out to LA and I went to Natalie's house and we went over about 25 songs that she might sing. And I kind of refreshed her memory about how they went and they started to write arrangements. But, you know, as I told you, I don't read music. So I participated in some of the album. And when the album became such a big success, she sent me that platinum record on the wall there. Can you see the platinum rec record on the wall? There it is. To Monty for helping, right. So I've had a ball talking so far today, but one thing I, I can tell you this, gentlemen, I traveled this country in those 60s, before civil rights. I was in Detroit when the riots started, right after the, uh, Dr. King's life was taken. And I was there, I remember going from the gig the day of the, the job ended, and I had to, um, as I was going to the airport, tanks were coming up the highway. And it was like, missed it by here, right? Because of the tanks and the guns and the whole thing, and because the riots started, and I was there during that time. I played in those areas. I played in LA during the riot in Watts. And um, let me show you some of these. These are two dear, 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 dear people. This is Mr. Randy Weston. Randy Weston, who became a dear friend, and we performed two piano concerts, duo concerts and recordings that who knows may hit hit the airwaves one day, but they really, if I may dare say so, kind of outstanding, amazing. These are two of the dearest people and I shared music with. That's Mr. Ray Brown in the middle, Mr. Herb Ellis, and yours truly, Monty Alexander. There, there it is, okay? So we have that. And here's a man I met at Jilly's. 
And he came to me, he said, where you learn to play like that? I, I said, I don't know. I don't know, but I, this is what I do. His name was Miles Davis. Miles, Miles said, come on by the house. And I got all these anecdotes and incidents and memories about being with Mr. Miles Davis. Miles became a fan. Yes, the fact, he, he had me play something for Gil Evans once. So you see, all this is happening with me, to me, for me, by me, and to this day I can't explain how, because it's just a gift from heaven. So as I try to remind myself of some of these things to share with you, that might bring a smile, other than me remembering, and I hope it doesn't come off egotistical, because I think about that. In fact, the reason why I never spoke about most of this kind of thing, when I was around my brother, sister musicians, I never want to expound about this and that. And I went and I was here and I this and because I, I come off like a, a, mani a maniac, a raving maniac. And because most people never have that, that kind of good opportunity. And, and for some reason, Miles did say to me once, he said, you ain't got no problem. I said, why is that? He said, because you got the right complexion to get the connection. <laughs> I mean, he really said that. And um, lots, of, lots of memories, lots of memories. Mr. Miles Dewey Davis, and um, I could tell you things that happened in our culture that music grew just before the advent of the incredible jazz academies. When the academies came about, it set a new, a new pattern, that one that I was not familiar with because I'm kind of like, I look, look sharp about it, but I'm basically a street musician, you know? I like... I like all the music that moves me, and it's not always something that's so-called jazz. Jazz is great, but it's about music. This heritage we have is an African-American classical music. It's a long word. And um, how else can I put it? It's a wonderful gift to make the world a nicer place because it's democracy in action. I heard the great Winton Marcellus say this. <clears throat> Winton, who's a remarkable guy, who has pulled his faculties together, his knowledge, his love of people, his mar excellent artistry, his um, respect, his integrity, and he has spawned a powerful movement to encourage little kids to be playing music, weebop, <laughs> I love it. And his dad was Ellis Marsalis. He passed just recently. We lament the loss of Ellis Marsalis, a man I met some years ago. And I had heard his name back in the 60s because he had recorded with none other than a, another guy I knew well, Cannonball Adley. I knew Cannonball and he was very kind to me and I could tell you stories about being in, with Cannonball, but my world was the world pre-academies and school and taking uh, lessons and I don't know what to call it. So I'm a little alien to that because, and because I never took lessons, I don't know how to give a lesson. All I can say is, bring the creator into your life and seek seek him for his blessings and yes store up some knowledge about what you're doing and make the piano your friend because from the first time i saw that piano it was like you said come here young man play me and that was my first toy the piano it's a beautiful thing because when you touch those notes if you put a little caressing embrace into the note guess what it make you feel good all over, right? So today's the 24th anniversary of me and Miss Cat being together, being married, and it's a great time. 
And I close in saying, everybody continue try to look up, not down, and do what you can to preserve life and be mindful of the threat of this virus and keep the distance that's been advised. Wash the hands all day long so your hand them get sore. Yes. Don't touch your face, you know. And um, for now, I want to say thank you all very much for listening to my, I call it, Monty's big mouth. Or Monty's very large mouth. Speaking a lot and saying a lot of things. See you soon.